I wanted to recap just for a minute this morning on the mission statement that Tim had shared last week to us. And the five points of the mission statement, if you remember, were to proclaim the gospel, to protect and nurture God's children, to preserve scriptural worship, to promote God's truth, and to present the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I'd like you to observe with me that all five of these assertions have a subjective and an objective side. All five of them do. The objective side has to do with truth. And on the objective side, to proclaim the gospel, the gospel is propositional. It's a revealed message. Sin and error abound, so there's deviation in both faith and practice. God reveals how he would be worshipped. That's an objective thing. His revelation is eternal. It's sufficient and holy and not to be tampered or, tampered or trifled with. That's objective. And his kingdom is defined and dedicated to his glory. And on the, on the subjective side of these things, the gospel is life to those who are being saved, isn't it? And we are the object of his protection and nurture. And we, in worship, we are able to approach him and know the joy for which we were created. His truth, His Word sets us free. And we live in the protection and blessing of His kingdom. Now, why would I take the trouble to say this this morning? Well, we all of us have a tendency to gravitate to one side or the other. We are always easily pulled to being overly subjective or overly objective. And sometimes we divide on these issues when we really should not. These things are both a part of what God intends for us and who he is. To quote a theologian named John Frame, in theory of knowledge, it is wrong to force a choice between object, what one knows, and subject, the knower. All knowledge involves both. You don't have knowledge unless you have both a subject and an object, unquote. And we saw this this morning as we were worshiping. We sang one song uh, in the beginning of the worship that was a hymn that was more about God, and we sang another song that had first-person phrase in it. You remember? And we turned and sang to God from ourselves. We had both there the objective knowledge, propositional, and the subjective how that knowledge applies to us and affects us. And if we were to leave either one of them aside, we would have big problems. And so we have to embrace both of those. Now, some people may think, well, a mission statement, well, that's awfully purposeful, isn't it? Why do we have to be so purposeful about it? Why can't we just have the whatever will be, will be kind of attitude and, and just go along as the church? And I think the reason why we have to be purposeful is because God has called us to be just that. Take a look at the person closest to you in the pew. Just turn and look at them. Get a good look at them. Okay, now focus your attention to somebody way across the room. Find some point and get a person in mind that's on the other side of the room. Okay. What is your purpose in Jesus Christ for these two people that you've just looked at? What is your purpose in Jesus Christ for them? 
What is our purpose in Jesus Christ for every person who enters our building and our church? If it isn't more than how nice to have this fun person here to meander along with me, we are not being faithful to the stewardship that we've been given. We've been called to proclaim the gospel. We've been called to protect and nurture God's children. We've been called to promote God's truth, to preserve scriptural worship, to present the kingdom of heaven on earth. If you ever have seen a watchmaker or a jeweler dealing with a watch, you understand that he builds a watch, he repairs a watch, he cleans a watch, with the goal that the watch will do what? Tell time. With the goal that it will accomplish that for which it was made. Now, using our looking around exercise again, look down, if you could, on this group of people in your mind's eye, like a watchmaker would look down into the workings of a watch. Do you see how each person here does their work in the service of God and the rest of the church? Do you see the continuum of which we are all a part and to which each new member is joined? as they come into our fellowship. Do you see how we function together? Do you see how we process people toward a goal of completion? The testimonies last week I really enjoyed of our former members, alumni who have been here. And uh, I'm not sure, what does it take to graduate from CGS? We still call them alumni. Perhaps that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. But... um, We have to be like the watchmaker in this. We have to be uh, purposeful in how we approach what we're doing here, each member of us, so that we can see God do something with what he's doing in us and through us. This this week we're going to look again at Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. If you'll turn there with me, please. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. If you were here last week, you would recall Pastor Tim giving the four-point outline to these two verses. And that outline was, who is the subject of our work? What are the methods of our work? What is the goal of our work? And what is the strength of our work? And he developed the first two points of the outline, that is, who is the subject of our work. He said that every man is the subject of our work and we're rightly charged not to hide the gospel from the eyes and the ears of the very ones who need its preaching and demonstration. So every man is the subject of our work and we broadcast freely to every man. And he talked also last week about the second point of the outline, that being the methods of our work. And he talked about the proclamation of Christ, about admonishment and about teaching. And I'm not going to say more about those two points today, other than if you would like to hear the sermon, you can get a copy of the tape or you can get on the Internet to to listen to it. I would encourage you to do that. This morning I intend to develop the last two points of the outline to finish up these uh, two verses here in Colossians chapter 1. So the last two points of the outline were, what is the goal of our work and what is the strength of our work? First of all, what is the goal of our work? Well, as you read Colossians 2, or sorry, Colossians 1, verses 28, verse 28, at the very end it says, 
so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Let me read both of the verses to you. Verse 28, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. So the goal of our work is to present every man complete in Christ. This is what we are wanting to do. This is what Paul was wanting to do. What does it mean to be complete? I was raised in a tradition, a spiritual tradition, that spoke often about being complete in Christ. They taught a doctrine, uh, what they called a second definite work of grace, separate from and subsequent to salvation. So you became a Christian, you first believed on Christ, then there was a second thing that happened to you, an experiential thing that was very definite that they called entire sanctification. If you've never heard of it, it is their doctrine of completion in that, uh, in that tradition of uh, Christianity. And in that tradition, you may get many opinions on how someone is entirely sanctified. I used to ask people how it was that they believed someone was entirely sanctified, what the process was. And I had, oftentimes, I, I would get answers from people, and they were always varied to some degree, but they kind of hovered around these four, that it was the achievement of sin, sinless living, that when someone was entirely sanctified, they had, they had become able to not sin anymore. It was the removal of the sin nature or original sin. In other words, that they believed that at that point, something, whatever it was that caused you to sin, was removed from you so that you could no longer sin, or you would no longer sin. The third thing that they would say often is that it meant committing your whole life to Christ and no holding back. So in that tradition, there was, uh, they used something called the altar call, where they had an altar down the front of the church. So people, when they would come to uh, confess faith in Christ, they would come down to the altar. When they would, when they would have the second crisis experience preached to them, they would come down to the altar and they would pray for that second crisis experience where they would be encouraged to really give everything to God this time and uh, turn it over to Him so that they would be completely His, this, perfecting, this perfection. And then, of course, the, the fourth kind of general category that I would hear in this tradition was that they would be able to love perfectly when they were entirely sanctified, the ability to love perfectly. Now, there were a couple things apparent in this tradition. Well, one of them was that they had a very weak view of sin and depravity, the motives of the heart from which our defilement comes. Remember, Jesus said it's not what goes in to a man that condemns him, but what comes out of his heart that condemns him. They, did, they, had, they didn't talk much about those types of things. And so there was never any communication in my, in my upbringing and in that church tradition. There was never any communication about what the Reformers called inability. Have you ever heard that word before, theological term, inability? Okay. I know some of you have. But there was never any communication about the, the, the term inability. And what inability means that a person who is unsaved, a person who has not been regenerate by the power of God's Spirit, who has not believed on Jesus Christ and confessed faith in, in Jesus, who has not been converted, that person is dead in their trespasses and sins. And if you're dead, what kind of abilities do you have? 
pretty limited, right? If you're dead, you have no abilities. And so the reformers used this term inability to describe just how bad sin had affected us. It rendered us unable. It rendered us dead. And so in my tradition, there was nothing ever said about inability. And consequently, I thought maybe I had some ability. And so I operated for a long time thinking that I had some ability. Now I want to stop for a minute and just comment to someone, anyone who might be here this morning, who's thinking about their life and have heard about Jesus Christ and have considered their own behavior and considered their situation. And you may feel one of two ways today if you've not yet believed on Jesus or confessed Him. You may, you may feel that you are either destitute and, and you may feel this great inability that I just talked about. And if you do, I want to say to you, that's a good thing. Because what you need to know is that although you are not, un, you are not able to save yourself from the wretchedness that is your life and your sin, God is able But there are some people here this morning that may feel that they have some ability to save themselves. That they have some ability to get God's favor upon them. And I want to say to you that you need to seek God's face and ask Him to show you just how bad you are. Because if you do not know that you can do nothing to merit God's favor, then you're going to have a difficult time approaching Him and understanding what Jesus has done for you. But I wanted to say that as an aside, because there may be someone here this morning who's dealing with one of those two things. And if you are and you'd like prayer, please grab one of the elders or leaders of the church afterwards, or myself, we'd be glad to pray with you. So in my tradition, there was a weak view of sin and depravity. And the other thing that was apparent from that tradition is that they had little or no confessional understanding of sanctification as it relates to suffering, as it relates to the regular process of our lives being changed by the power of God. Since sin had been reduced, remember, if you have a low view of depravity, sin is reduced. If you don't understand that you have no ability and you think you have some ability, then sin has been reduced to something that you can handle. And so if, with, no, with no specific confessional understanding of, of sanctification and, and its relationship to our life and how it processes through us, there was a, a need to reduce sin to, certain, to a certain set of things that were uh, able to be managed. Now, think of some things that you know are able to be managed. Now, may, maybe they have or have not been able to be managed by you, but uh, in my tradition, the basic things that had to be managed were cigarettes, alcohol, movies, and the circus. Okay? Those were the things that had to be managed. And so, sanctification simply became, became your ability to overcome the things that had to be managed, but no real turning to the issue of the source from whence all this problem came the inability, the darkness of the heart. And how was it achieved? It was achieved by coming to the altar and praying and somehow experiencing some divine 
I always I think about altars now, and I, when I talk to people about them, I think about them in terms of, a, of the catalytic converter on the car, you know? You know what a catalytic converter does? It takes the gases coming out of the engine, and without changing itself, without the little beads being affected inside the converter, it converts the gases and the uh, emissions from your car into something that won't destroy life all around you. And so this is how I think people view these altars and places, these holy places that they come. They think, well, if I go there, this thing is going to be the catalyst for me to change. But that's how people would come. They would come to the altar, and God would catalytically, and now I'm sanctified. No more smoking for me. I do believe that when a sinner calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is saved. And that they are absolutely seen by God as clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that it is immediate. That they are immediately clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But just because one is righteous in Christ, it does not stand to reason that he or she is also mature in Christ. Paul's work here in Colossians and our work here in Bloomington is not giving people righteousness or showing them how they can earn righteousness. We can't. And they can't. Paul's work and ours is the processing of every man to the goal of presenting every man complete. This is the work of the church in evangelism and in progressive sanctification as we preach, teach, and admonish. This is our work. This is the sanctifying work that is done in fear and trembling as the deeper Motives of the dark recesses of our hearts are exposed, we are literally being changed into the image of Christ as God the Holy Spirit deals with our sin. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands now. How many of you have been Christians more than five years? Okay. Look around and see. Don't put them down yet. There's a lot of them. All right. I'm going to ask that group of people a question. How many of you have found something out about yourself that is loathsome or, or, or rediscovered some dark tendency about your sinful heart in the last year? Now look around again. If you've not been a Christian for more than five years and you're wondering what the process takes, you'll see that people, God changes them over time in this context as the church works together. We'll look at more of that in a minute. The Greek word for completion here in Colossians is the word teleos, and it has to do with perfection in the sense of certain desired purposes being achieved. The task or development has been completed. And it's also used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Let me read this to you. And he gave some to be apostles, I'm sorry, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, there it is, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. 
But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The mature, complete man, then, is not affected by the trendy surface winds that are perpetuated by men's craftiness and trickery and deceitful scheming. The church was designed in large part for the purpose of processing people from spiritual infancy to maturity. Paul saw his spiritual children in much the same way we see our physical children. We see our physical children not just as they are now, but when we look at them, we see their entire development from the point of the moment we knew that they were in the womb and we put our face up against our wife's belly and we said, Is anybody in there? Hello in there. We see them from that moment all the way to the time that they are now. When I look at my children, I see them that way. And that's how Paul saw his spiritual children. From the time of their infancy to the time where they were now. When we see our children in this way, we strategize for their completion. We think, what will it take to get them from here to there? When Paul looked at his spiritual children, he strategized for their completion. He said, what will it take me to do to get them from here to there? I have to grow these children in the Lord. I have to get them to perfection. I have to see them reach maturity so they're not tossed about and destroyed by every new wind that comes along. Philippians 1, he says, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul understood. He understood the process of the spiritual continuum. I spoke with a pastor friend on the phone yesterday. We caught up on the past couple of months. We haven't spoken to each other for a while. He shared some of his concerns with me. And in his city, there is a church. There are two churches, actually, that I'm going to mention. One that has a a very, I don't know what to call the service that they have. He said they actually have a bubble machine in their worship. So that while they're worshiping, these bubbles come out. And then he talked to me about another church in town that I remember when I was there that does an advertising campaign. And the advertising campaign is intended to get people to attend their church. And the campaign basically is, is structured around some music and some, and some uh, cool effects. And, it, and the, the basic phrase is, during the, camp, the advertisement, the basic phrase is, this is not your mother's church. It's talking about their church. And they say, this is not your mother's church. And I've heard this in other cities, so I'm assuming that it's part of some greater church growth strategy that you can be a part of. Thousands of people flock to the services of that church. And my friend has spoken with the pastor. And he asked him, he said, you understand that the message of your church is that the church exists 
for the purpose of entertaining people? He said, do you understand that that's the message of your advertisement? And the pastor hears him but doesn't hear him. And so my friend is trying to determine whether he will escalate his efforts in some other way to get them to stop because of what the way that they're presenting the church to the world. Now, I support a great deal of what is considered contemporary or culturally relevant. If you know me at all, you'd know that. But being contemporary is only a positive thing in the church if the saints are being equipped, if the body is being built up, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God is being pursued, and the mature man is expected and seen. That's when it's good. That's when it's acceptable. I know for a fact that this is not true of this church that my friend was talking to me about because I know about them. And I know that there's no admonition in that church, that there's no correction in that church. Or as Pastor Tim would say, they, were all, they would always be giving God's yes but never his no. Not being your mother's church may only be a good thing, may be a good thing, but it's only a good thing if what you have instead is definitely the Father's church. And that's what we need to have. The goal of our work is to present every man complete in Christ. What is the strength of our work? The strength of our work, as it says in Colossians 1, is the power, His power, which mightily works within us. What does Paul mean when he says he strives at this labor? It just means that he agonizes during this labor. He agonizes over this labor that he has in God. Have you uh, ever been so tired from your manual labor that you agonize? That you're so weary? Every time I move my family or every time I watch someone else move, it's always interesting the person that's the, the one in charge of the move, usually it's the husband who's in charge of making sure everything and he's directing people and He's working and he's working and he's working and he's agonized by the end of the day over how tired he is having moved things and directed people and made so many decisions. When he's used to making 100 decisions a day, he's making 10,000 decisions about moving. And it gets to the end of the day and all he wants to do is fall into the bed and guess what? The bed's on the moving van. (laughs) And there's a 5 to 10 hour drive before you get to the place you're going. That kind of tired... This is how Paul was in the work that he was doing. He was tired from his spiritual labor. He was agonizing. He was working not only on the perfection of of the others, but he was working on his own perfection. You look at Philippians 3. He says, I'm pressing for the goal that lies ahead. He's working on his own behalf, plus he's working on behalf of these others. If you you heard Wayne read this morning, 1 Corinthians 16, he was talking about staying in Ephesus and not coming to Corinth. He said, I'm staying in Ephesus until Pentecost because this door of effective service is open to me. And there is what? There is also much opposition. And this is Paul's life all the time. Well, you know, there's work, but there's always the positive side. Opposition. Just constantly as he goes. Is it going to be true of us as we process people and do our part in the kingdom of God? Yes, it will. But it is God's power that is at work. That's why Paul continued his labor. Because he had an outside energy source 
God has always been pleased to work through us, demonstrating his power in those who he calls. Even back with the children of Israel, if you remember when David was king and they needed deliverance from their enemies, you remember the, the, the uh, section of First Chronicles 14 where David goes and inquires of the Lord, should I go out? And the Lord said, yes, go out, but go around by the balsam trees, I think it is. Yeah, no, go around by the balsam trees. And when you hear the army marching in the, in the branches of the balsam trees, then you go out because that means I'm gone before you. And it's a wonderful picture of how God works in our lives. Just like in the Old Testament, as he would march with his heavenly armies with Israel and before them to defeat their enemies, did they come back from the battle tired and weary? I know they did. It was still a huge conflict, a huge battle. But just as God did that then, so he does with us now. With Paul, with us in our lives. So then, my beloved, just as Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul understood this in his life. He understood this through his life as he ministered to others. We understand this in our lives, that God is at work within us, accomplishing his pleasure, and that God is working through us to help him in the kingdom as he sanctifies, processes, brings people from infancy to maturity. I, I can't imagine sometimes how, how hard it would be for the people who were ministering in that time because, you know, we read stories in the Scriptures about how the, how the people clamored around them. Jesus in particular, how Jesus was just, just mobbed by the throngs and how Paul, I'm sure, many times was just had people clamoring all around him and how tiresome that would be. You know, we went out and gave away water. When was the parade? A week ago last Friday. We had two trucks in the parade. We had the, the Right to Life truck and we had a water truck that we were just giving out water into the, to the parade downtown. And it was really interesting. I, I mentioned to the people who participated when we got done how, how that may be the closest thing we would have in our lives to understanding what it was like for Jesus when the people clamored for his message, for his gospel, for his healing, for everything that he had to offer them. And they pressed in on him. I mean, the people at the, at the parade were just yelling, Water! Water! Throw it to me! And we couldn't keep up with them. This is the kind of work that the church has to do. We have something that is that desired and that popular and that necessary. We have the message of Jesus Christ. We have the scripture to teach. We have admonishment to give. And the world is hungry for it and thirsty for it. And it's going to be hard work as we deliver it to them. When Paul wasn't preaching and tired from teaching and clamoring, he was 
resting up from being jailed or stoned or whipped or beaten with rods or shipwrecked. And in all of that, he understood that God was working through him. And he said in in 2 Corinthians, he said, uh, I implored the Lord three times that this thorn in my flesh would lead me. We aren't sure what it is, whether it was a physical thing. But God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's how the paradox gets sewn up. How can he be tired and weary from his striving and his labor when God works through him? Because God doesn't work through his strength. God works through his weakness. God works through the weakness of Paul. Who is the subject of our work? Every man. Do we dare to live our lives as if the kingdom of God were more important than any other kingdom? Do we dare to do that? What are the methods of our work? Preaching, admonishing, teaching. Do we trust God's methods? Do we trust God's methods? Or should we get a bubble machine? What is the goal of our work? Processing one another to completion. Do we have a purpose in Christ for those who are around us? For those who are next to us or on the other side of the room? What is the strength of our work? It is God working through us. Are we willing to be physically used up each day if God would be pleased to empower us for His kingdom?